Hey, uh, one of the common criticisms of the American church, the Western church, is that it's an inch deep and a mile wide. And uh, I hope that New Life doesn't fit in that category. I don't know about you, but I want to I be a deep Christian. I want to have a faith that sinks its roots down deep. And uh, we're striving to be a church that teaches the Bible around here. And if you're, you've been with us, you know we're in this series in Romans, which has been great and fantastic. And we find ourselves now at the brink of a, a, a new juncture in Romans, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I want you to know we're going to be navigating some deep waters these next several weeks. And as I thought and prayed about this several months ago, I thought who better to be our captain, our guide, to help us navigate uh, the depths than our good longtime friend, Henry Louis Goulet. And uh, wow. How many Twitter followers do you have? I mean, so uh, Henry has been with us for a long, long time as our friend, and uh, we bring him in from time to time to do some great teaching here. Love this man. He loves the Lord. He loves the Word. He is the uh, executive director and academic dean of the Messianic Studies Institute right here in our town, which is just a great organization, an equipping, training organization that helps people understand the, the Jewish heritage of our Christian faith, and they do a great work. Uh, our Easter offering this year is going to go to help support their work, and we'll tell you more about that in upcoming weeks. But uh, Henry is here. He is uh, married to the beautiful Marguerite. They have two children and five grandchildren, and uh, he's coming to bring the word to us. So I hope you're ready to be stretched today. And uh, towards that end, I want to pray for us that the Holy Spirit will be our truth teacher this morning. So let's pray. And Lord, we come now to you, our great Father in heaven, the Father of our precious Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask that through your blessed Holy Spirit now, you would open up our hearts and minds to your, your will and your ways and your plan. Lord, we know that so often your ways are higher than our ways, and I think we're going to discover that in a new and fresh way again these next several weeks. So, Lord, teach us, and may we come with a submissive heart and a submissive spirit to understand you better, because we love you, Lord, and we know that you love us. So grant us that gift now, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's welcome Henry. It's God's sovereignty that he would use the analogy of deep water. It really is, because I can only say it, it's God's sovereignty that we partner together in the teaching of the Word, and that's a wonderful thing. So it's my privilege to help us with Romans 9 through 11, but it's my problem that I'm the one teaching 9 to 11, and that is why the sermon was originally called Romans 911. <laughs> we might need to dial it. It's going to be too much, I will drown us. As a professor, I have to say the following. Romans, this is my uh, disclaimer on this sermon series. Uh, as Paul Menier so humbly and transparently said, at the outset of his own study of the purposes of Romans, attempts to contend with Paul's thought quickly force any reader far beyond their depth. And unless one confesses that this goal exceeds their grasp, they have not yet begun to grasp. 
Long before him, Moses Stewart became a model of the honest scholar of Romans by unabashedly admitting his wholehearted lack of confidence in relation to his own work on Romans and the trembling sense of the responsibility of that work. For time reasons, we're not going to read the whole first part of your outline that has all the purposes of Romans. So that's like a a homework assignment in the outline. Understand then that where we pick up Romans in 9 is Paul is going back to Romans 3.1 where he asks the question, what advantage has the Jew much in every way? And then he has, has to explain, if that's true, how is God righteous in that so few, just a remnant, have obeyed God. And so that takes us to this word, righteous. And the question we have to ask is, what does it mean to be righteous? Righteous is doing what is right, required, or obligated in relationships. And in this instance, covenant love relationships. And justice is the restoration with that when it goes wrong. And this takes us all the way back to Genesis 18, 19, which we'll look at. Romans 9 through 11 is a self-contained unit. 9, 1 through 5 is the introductory pouring out of Paul's heart. And those five verses end with a very serious amen. And then we have the very long section of Romans 6 through 11.32. And this is where Paul explains how God is righteous and his word has not failed in regard to the outworking of the good news in light of the promises to Israel. When he's finished that long section, we have a closing doxology in 11.33 through 36 that again ends with an amen. And that's an amen to the whole of 9 to 11. And understand that when we say amen to anything, we're saying that we see what's been said or sung and we wholeheartedly affirm it. Never take an amen lightly. So Paul starts in one by saying, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I'm telling the truth in Messiah. He's telling the truth, not lying. That's an over-the-top way to make sure you know how true he is about his deepest sorrow. And to say in Messiah and in the Holy Spirit is to say, and I'm saying this from inside the new covenant that I wish most of my fellow Israelites were also now in. And to refer to your conscience in Paul's time is to refer to just consciousness of how much one's actions and way of life is in line with the moral standards one is obligated to. It's too much. It's too fast. That's because Paul is too much. 
too fast. What is he truthful about? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Mega sorrow and unceasing mental anguish in the deepest part of his being. The kind of deep anguish that robs you of joy when someone you love is in real danger. And he closes this thought out in 10.1 by saying, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their rescue. And so how deep is this sorrow? Paul says, I could almost wish. The text does not say I could wish or I wish. It's a tendential imperfect in Greek that says, I could almost wish that I myself were a cursed thing separated from the Messiah for the sake of my brothers and sisters, my kinspersons, according to the flesh. A cursed thing here can refer to the ancient votive offering or something devoted to God for destruction, like a city that wasn't living rightly. But here, Paul is being almost like Moses, who in the sin of the golden calf said, blot me out of your book if you don't forgive the people. And God said, no way. I will, I will judge who needs to be judged, but you get busy doing your role again, Moses. Paul could almost be like Moses there. And this ties to a passage you just did last week. Romans 8, 38 through 39 in this way. That passage, through amazing words, says no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. No one and nothing. But I could almost wish myself separated from Messiah on behalf of my fellow Israelites. Do you see that beautiful thing? It's in yellow. You can't be separated, but I almost wish I could be. Is that our burden for the Jewish people today? And then never forget Ephesians 2.12. Remember, you were at that time separated from Messiah. There was a time when we were separated from Messiah. Now he's saying, I could almost wish I was for the fullness of Israel. Is our heart's desire and prayer like Paul's? Beloved, beware of the hurtful, naive, and even ignorant tendency of too many Gentiles who say things like, how can the Jewish people not see that Yeshua is the Messiah in the suffering servant passages of Isaiah? Do you know what saying things like this shows? That we're ignorant of God's partial hardening. That is a hardening in part of Israel that comes right out of Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. 
God judged Israel for disobedience and said to Isaiah, here's your ministry. Go take care of my people, but they're going to have ears that don't hear and eyes that don't see, but otherwise, enjoy your ministry. <laughs> this is God's judgment on his people. This is the partial hardening. That is the hardening in part. So that when we get to the Gospels and we see blind persons seeing through Yeshua and deaf persons hearing and all the other reversal of conditions, that's the reversal that has begun in the new covenant of Israel's condition being judged in Isaiah. And I leave you all these passages to look at on your own. Don't miss Isaiah 61.1, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel 36. The restoration of Israel begins by that reversal. And that gets us to the place where the mission to the Gentiles begins in the Gospels. So again, I ask, is our heart's desire and prayer like Paul's? Beloved, beware of a holy, dejudaized Bible and good news and, and life in the name of reaching Gentiles today that erases the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And Israel's privileged and preeminent status among us i.e. to the Jew first, and causes us to trample on the Jewish people instead of desiring and praying them into the jealousy or zealousy God intended by our merciful inclusion. You've probably already read in Romans that they were zealous without knowledge. We're supposed to make them zealous with knowledge. We'll, we'll get there. Remember, we're mercifully included. In 9.4, he identifies these as the Israelites to whom belong all these wondrous things. The adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the Torah, the service of worship, and the promises. Israelites is an ancient internal term emphasizing God's election and his, his covenant and the irrevocable gifts and calling of God, specifically stated in 1129. The adoption is children. Wasn't that an incredible song we sang about adopted, adopted as children today? That's us Gentiles thanking God that somehow we became the children of God. Wait, do you see this in Hosea? It's unique to Paul. This word is a single word. It recalls Israel as God's firstborn child. And you have some passages there to see that. The adoption of children is now applied to Jews and Gentiles in Messiah, as seen in Romans 8, 15, and 23. The glory in 4b recalls God's manifest presence with his people throughout all of history. Sinai, pillar of cloud and fire, tabernacle, ark of the covenant, temple, and promised future glory with his people back to face to face. The key passage for this is Exodus 34, 6, and 7, where Moses said to God, show me your glory, and this is how God answered 
The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate or merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And the last piece is key for us. That's why it's in yellow. Abounding in chesed, that's covenant, loyal, loving kindness, and emet, that's faithfulness, who keeps that covenant, loyal, loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished. We have to know Exodus 34, 6, and 7 because it's the main revelation of God's character in covenant relation. And let me blow your mind with this. This glory is now applied to Jews and Gentiles and Messiah as seen where? John 1.14, which ends with the exact quote in the verse we just looked at in Exodus 34. Here's how John 1.14 really reads. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his what? Glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It doesn't read full of grace and truth. It reads full of hesed, covenant, loyal, loving kindness, and emet, faithfulness. John quoted the last words of Exodus 34, 6. What you see in God the Father, invisible, called yod heh vav is enfleshed in Yeshua, that very character. That's what John was doing. This glory is now applied to Jews and Gentiles in Messiah as seen in Romans 9, 23 through 24. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. In 9.4c, we have the covenants. Most likely, recalling God's covenants with Abraham, Isaac, the three patriarchs, Moses, David, and the new covenant explicitly stated in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which says is with the house of Israel and Judah, even though we become a part of it. The covenants with Israel on behalf of all nations, are now ultimately applied to Jews and Gentiles and Messiah without any hint of erroneous fulfillment theology that would say something like the land promise was fulfilled in Yeshua. He is the land. No. He's going to make sure that the unassuming inherit the land. The land promise is yet to come. The giving of Torah, a single pregnant word, emphasizes that Israel has as its instructor God himself over and against all other nations. And because of that Torah, Israel possessed an unparalleled wisdom, educated force, and guide for its life that was supposed to lead her to Messiah. Only 
it was stumbled over and the majority missed Messiah. Like flawless Torah observing Paul who didn't have a conscience problem when he was busy living out Torah and missing Messiah. My bad, technology. <laughs> Torah is now applied to Jews and Gentiles. Please hear this section. By internalization, ethical concentration, and intensification in Messiah, who is the goal of Torah, as Torah become flesh. All done now in the Spirit. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 9, 21b, I am not being without the law of God. But on the contrary, I'm being in accordance with the law of Messiah. And in the Spirit, the law of the Spirit in Messiah Yeshua has set us free from the law of sin and death. What is this internalization, ethical concentration, and intensification? It's intense, isn't it? The internalization of the Torah, of the law, is nothing short of the promise of the new covenant that Torah will now be on your heart. You can live it out from the inside. The Jew would see this clearly in the passages I list for you. They're going to be free to respond with obedience by the Spirit. These are the classic passages. This internalization of the law was explained to Gentiles in Romans 6 and 7 using the example of the difference between the stock slave in Rome and the ideal slave. The stock slave heard instructions, carried them out like a robot. Didn't know them before they hear, heard them. The ideal slave in Rome loved the master, knew and anticipated from an internal place what the master wanted and lived it out willingly without hearing the instruction. Paul uses that analogy to explain what the Jews would understand that it's going to be in your heart, able to be carried out without even hearing those instructions because now they're on your heart. The ethical concentration of the law is nothing short of the summarization of the entirety of a law in the single command to love one's neighbor as oneself. We should know that's Leviticus 19.18b, the second greatest commandment. And it wholly presumes the first one in Deuteronomy 6.5, which is to love the Lord with all your heart, being in muchness. Now, this is presented to us as a sandwich in Romans 13, 8 through 10. The top piece of bread is the top rectangle. The bottom piece of bread is the bottom rectangle. And what's pink in the middle is the corned beef. And the top slice of bread is an explicit statement that says the whole law is fulfilled in loving one's neighbor. And the bottom piece of bread says the same thing. The whole law is fulfilled in love of neighbor. Two explicit statements. And in the middle is the citation of Leviticus 19.18. 
the second great commandment, which becomes the ethically concentrated summary of all of Torah for people in Messiah. Look at it. For the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Oh, 10 commandments for Messiah followers? Yes, Andy Stanley. And if there is any other commandment, they're summed up in this. Love the one next to you as if they were the same as you. Isn't that profound? That's the total law ethically concentrated from the Messiah followers. Could you tell that was a sandwich? Does this help? (laughs) But now no one will listen from here on because now they're hungry. Bad mistake, yes? The intensification of the law is nothing short of a new covenant perfection of the moral and ethical practice of the law in demonstration of that concentrated ethical love your neighbor as yourself. Jews have just come back into Rome. Gentiles have been in charge and the communities all over Rome are a mess. And this commandment summed up is gonna make it all good. You'll read Romans 12 through 14 and you'll see how that love gets down into the nitty gritty of everyday life between Jews as Jews and Gentiles as Gentiles, one in Messiah. And you're going to see that it involves welcoming, serving, and even pleasing each other as Jews and Gentiles right down to the eating and drinking. And a careful reading shows those that live this way are called slaves of Messiah, and those who don't and stumble each other are called slaves of your own bellies. And that's an idiom for slaves of your own self-indulgent preferences. Romans 6, I mean Romans 9, 4D. In fact, the whole exhortation about how to live together in community as Jews and Gentiles in 12 through 15 is to be understood in terms of 12, 1 through 2, which calls for each person to allow themselves to be transformed by the renewal of their mindset, including this internalization, ethical concentration, and intensification of the Torah, which allows them to accommodate each other in everyday life. The service of worship in 9.4e likely recalls both Israel's rich liturgical practices and their way of life characterized by service to God because it was let my people go in order that they may serve me. Service is always in mind. This service is now applied to Jews and Gentiles in all the house congregations over Rome. They're scattered everywhere. And 12.1 is the exhortation. By the mercies of God, we're to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which it says, it's not your spiritual service of worship, it says it's your only logical or reasonable service of worship. The promises recall all God's promises in all the covenants. As Longernecker notes, this leads Paul directly into his presentation in 9, 6 through 29 of God's promises to who? The remnant of Israel. When we get to 9.5, we have two crowning features of Israel. We have to whom belong the patriarchs and from whom by fleshly descent came the Messiah. And the best reading of the text is to read that next phrase as it is, who is God overall, blessed forever, amen. Here's how that works. The reference 
to Messiah as coming from Israel, insofar as fleshly descent is concerned, is amazing but limiting. It invites a limitless counterpoint, and that is who is God over all. This means Romans 9.5 is directly reflecting the opening declaration of Romans 1, 3, and 4. Born from the seed of David according to the flesh, declared the Son of God according to holiness. From here, Paul moves to the Word of God has not failed. It's not as though the Word of God has failed. From here on, we must understand remnant theology. I'm going to go quick through this part. The remnant is sovereignly established by God alone. It's small but great. It represents both a present and a future in that day entity, as you read through Scripture. The concept of the remnant is related to God's election of Israel. The remnant is commonly associated with Zion, the city of Jerusalem. Here's a very important point for us now. While God establishes the remnant, Sovereignly. The other side of that establishment is responsive faithfulness of God's elect. It's a both and reality, not an either or, like so many have made it. We look to the prototype Abraham for this. It's right in the passage we said it would be in, Genesis 18, 19. I have chosen him, the one side, the election side, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? There it is, faithfulness, by doing righteousness and justice, by doing what's right in covenant relationship, in response. And then I'll deliver all my promises to Abraham. You can go to Genesis 22, 16, and 17. You can see the same principle in the offering up of Isaac. And then that takes us back to the whole starting place. That takes us back to the whole starting place. And that is Genesis 15, 6. And look down there at the bottom. That's a modified version that just takes two words from the net translation and changes them from believe to trust and from uh, faith to trust. Then Avram trusted the Lord and the Lord considered his response of trust as genuine loyalty. You put your trust in God first You trust the good news, you get in Messiah, you get the good news, you get the Spirit, and now you're able to be the faithful covenant partner God was always looking for. And that is precisely why you've heard that the book of Romans is framed in 1.5 and 16.26 with what's in yellow. Paul was sent to secure the obedience, which is namely faith-producing faithfulness. It's the power of the good news from the faith, faithfulness of God and Messiah to producing the faith, faithfulness, obedience of his people. He was obedient unto death so we could be obedient to all he would command in response. It is 
nothing short of off the charts profound. If you want to read a profound book on God's sovereignty and human cooperation, Yet I Love Jacob by Joel Kaminsky is the book for you. Are we going too fast? Yes, we are. Is it too much? Yes, it is, because Paul is too much. So you have my sympathy uh, at how painful it is not to do an overview of this chapters. <laughs> not only is there a remnant of Israel, there's also envisioned a remnant that God gathers from among the nation's Gentiles, and wow, we're part of that. And then... A very important point for 9 through 11. There are diverse opinions throughout history about the gathering of the Gentiles. Understand, in Paul's day, the synagogue is busy with the Aramaic version of the scriptures, which holds that the only way the nations are going to be with us is when we're restored and we conquer them by force. And in this book called Paul in the Synagogue, Romans in the Isaiah Targum by Delio Dorio, all he does is look at all Paul's use of Isaiah in Romans to show that he's using only the translations of Isaiah or making his own that show the synagogue you're wrong about this. It's not going to be by force. It's by God's call, and they're flooding in already, and you're missing the boat. It's profound. The gathering of the remnant is not the final goal of God. The final goal is the rescue of all Israel. All Israel, if you want to understand that, comes straight out of Chronicles. Go there. It's where it occurs the most. And all it means is when some from every tribe are in Messiah, then all Israel is rescued. You know how to see this profoundly? When you finish the Bible, you go to Revelation chapter 7, and you see 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes for 144,000, yes? Carefully read your Bible, you find out that the Messianic army, that the army of Israel is comprised of 1,000 members from each tribe. That's 12,000 total. So in Revelation, when you see it's multiplied, 12,000, it's a multiple of 12, the number of perfection. That's telling you in Revelation 7, the consummate number of Israelites, all Israel, is being rescued. And that's the beauty of uh, Revelation 7. And then next to that, of course, you see that innumerous crowd of Every tribe, tongue, people, nation. Boom, that's us. Yes? Oh, are you excited about this? I'm sorry, but that's off the charts. Okay. And then, uh, of course, being close to Messiah is, is part, of the, part of the remnant. This remnant concept, listen, develops over time and is adapted to changing situations. And there's a Jewish way of interpreting Scripture that allows you in translation to reapply it to a new situation and even change what the text says to make your point, and Paul does this. You may have never heard this, but it's happening. And he does it in Isaiah and Hosea, and I'm gonna show it to you in Hosea. This passage 
is speaking to the remnant of Israel. This is Isaiah 10, 21 and 22. That no matter how the promise said, grains of sand as far as, only a remnant is going to be rescued. And this passage is a passage about the remnant of the nations. This one here, uh, Isaiah 19, 23 through 25, that says there will come a day when Egypt is called my people, Assyria is the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance, is also my people. Paul's remnant theologizing is Jewish remnant theologizing reconfigured around the goodness of Messiah and the Spirit. Here, I just had a slide to tell you that 66% of Paul's citations of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings are in Romans 9 through 11. It shows that these Messianic congregations were extensively influenced by the theology, ways of thinking, and terminology of early Messianic Judaism in Jerusalem. So this is an urgent plea to know the Torah, the prophets, and the writings And Brent Strawn has written a book called The Old Testament is Dying, meaning Christians are losing touch with what's its content, and therefore we don't know what's being said in the New Covenant Scriptures. When we get here, the whole section of 9, 6b through 13 is all about how not all physically descended from Israel are Israel of promise. So this passage is all together only about the distinction between promise Israel and ethnic Israel. As God's promises were only and ever guaranteed to promise Israel. So Ishmael is blessed and physical, but not promised Israel. Main takeaways. This passage confirms God's complete Sovereign, historical freedom to choose or call anyone for his purposes, including Jacob over Esau, before anyone demonstrates a qualification remotely that might be attributed, you know, through their lineage or works. All according to the principle of Romans 8, 28 through 29. Think about God choosing Jacob over Esau. Esau becomes the ancestor of the Edomites. They're a vessel of wrath and an enemy of Israel for the rest of our lives. So God chose Jacob. That's wonderful. But does that mean that as one in the called life, it's going to be an easy life? Think of being Jacob and your favorite son is sold into slavery in Egypt by your brothers. Which, by the way, Joseph in Egypt is the first time Israel blesses the nations, according to God's promise. He is so torn up because he thinks his son is dead, he wishes himself dead. But what's the end of the story? When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he says, what you meant for, God meant for. That is Romans 8, 28, 29, as it should be contextually heard. God calls... God causes all things to work together for the good to those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. That's the context we're talking about. It's the working together of all things, you know, for the good that are messed up like that. In 9, 6b through 13, he makes the point that the word of God has not failed. He says here in a rhetorical question, what shall we say then? 
There is no injustice or unrighteousness with God. Is there? Do you know may it never be in the Greek is the way of saying thing in Greek that says that's not even possible. The Greek of may it never be says it's not even possible. And so here in 15 through 18, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, compassion on whom I will have compassion. It doesn't depend on the person who wills or the person who runs, but on God who has mercy. The passage here is basic theodicy. That's vindication or justification of the justice of God. And it's grounded in a much earlier and weighty revelation of Moses in Exodus 33 during the golden calf incident where he reveals again that his chief character is mercy, but he will punish those who need punishment. And it's his right to choose the objects of mercy and the objects of wrath. Paul held that God was abundantly merciful and extraordinarily patient, millennia. Desiring their repentance, he also held that everyone who received God's wrath justly deserved it. We need to focus in now on the end of that passage, 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to display my power in you, that my name might be great in the whole earth. He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Paul changed the passage. The Greek of this passage does not say, I raised up you specifically for this purpose. It says, for this purpose, I allowed you to remain. I allowed you to remain, Pharaoh. Paul changes the verb to, I raised you up. Paul is trying to show that what God did to Pharaoh had a purpose, and that's a hardening, and that means he's taking you somewhere with the hardening. Look at this. Here, Paul emphasizes the appropriate side of hardening theology to prepare for a shocking point. The God who shows mercy as he wills is also the God who can harden as he wills, and so now he's hardened his own people. As God hardened the Gentile Pharaoh to deliver Israel and reveal his name among the nations, so God has now hardened Israel to bring a chance for the nations to come in. Can you see this genius reversal? And so then the issue is raised about, so then why does God find fault with people if he's so sovereign? And of course, Paul becomes Job and says, who are we to ask what God is doing? (laughs) Yes? And that's not a cop-out because he moves to potter and clay imagery and talks about what if God, desiring to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known like he did with Pharaoh for you, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory. I'm sorry, the ri- he did so to make known, yeah, the riches of his glory. Wow, this is too much even for me. <laughs> Upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. I'm convinced with Linebaugh that Paul used the wisdom of Solomon, 13 through 14, a wisdom book, in Romans 1 through 2. But here with Keck, I'm convinced 
that Paul is working in part from the perspective of at least Yeshua ben Sirah's wisdom book, chapters 33, 13 through 15. Why? There it says, like clay in the hand of the potter, to be molded as he pleases, so all are in the hand of their maker to be given whatever he decides. Good is the opposite of evil, life the opposite of death, so the sinner is the opposite of the, uh, of the godly, and look at all the works of the Most High, they come in pairs, one the opposite of the other. You know what he's really saying? The vessels of wrath for destruction are what brings the vessels of mercy to their glory. Without them, they do not get there. Who are these vessels of mercy? Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews also, but from among the Gentiles. And then Paul does something extraordinary with Hosea 2.23 and 1.10. Stay with me, I know the time is clicking, but we must see at least this much uh, before we defer anything else to include in chapter 10. Here we go. First, Paul uses Jewish Midrash to change the context of Hosea 2.23 from its original context of solely Israel's restoration to its covenant relationship with God after playing the harlot to include Gentiles and Messiah as part of Israel's restoration. How does he do that, secondly? He takes the, the words, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and he puts it in front of, in her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. He reverses the order to emphasize those not called his people now being called his people, which was originally said just of Israel, but now is done this way to show the nations are now called his people. It's amazing. And in place of the verb, I will say, he uses the verb, I will call, to emphasize that these Gentiles were called. And then fourth, in Hosea 1.10, here, in the use of it, in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. Originally said of Israel, come back from harlotry, now emphasized it's you Gentiles who are being called the children of the living God. And what is all that designed to do? Make Israel physical jealous. This means that our identity as Gentiles in Messiah is not a standalone identity. It finds its striking feature in the continued story of Israel. The Jewish no to the good news is not God's no to the Jewish people. If their transgression is riches for the world and if their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness mean? We're almost there. The conclusion in light of 10, 19, and 11, 11 is, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? I will make you zealous or jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding. 
zeal without knowledge? I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them what? Jealous, zealous. Here in Romans 9, 27 through 29, he then takes you to see how wondrous the remnant is because it's God's faithfulness, but how small it is. And hot on the heels of what he's just said, that's to make you crave for the fullness of Israel by your faithfulness to God. Here in 30 through 33, he asked these questions. What shall we say then? This whole section is tied to chapter 10. So that means next week, we're gonna handle 9, 30 through 33 in the context of chapter 10 because we can't rush through that. Does that make sense? Okay, so that leaves us with the closing word of 10.1 from the deep sorrow section. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them, that is the Israelites, is for their deliverance. Let us marvel at the remnant of Jews and our inclusion as a remnant of the nations. And then let's pray and live in a way that perhaps in our day, God will usher in the fullness of Israel from all 12 tribes. Let's pray. So our God, we thank you for what you're doing in history. We thank you that it always involved your covenant people. What a mercy that we who were separated are now made near. We as Gentiles want to do what we're supposed to do to help in history so that you and your sovereignty can have the fullness of Israel and you will be shown to be who you said you were in Exodus 34. And this we ask in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.